Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 17 years of law enforcement analysis experience with 21 years of law enforcement experience overall. He's worked in DeKalb County in Georgia, Lincoln, Nebraska, and now he is the Senior Threat Risk Analyst for MD Anderson University of Texas Police in Texas. He holds a PhD from Walden University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He is an author, he is an instructor, and a potster. Please welcome Dr. Andrew Dasher. Drew, how are we doing? I'm doing awesome, Jason. Thanks for having me today. And thank you for that awesome intro. I guess I'm adding podster to my resume today as well. <laughs> well, I, I like to do things in three and uh, looking at your resume, I couldn't come up with another, uh, a third one, but I think it still fits very well. So um, really uh, looking forward to you know getting your perspective and contributions to the profession. I think it's an interesting avenue that you're currently in being an analyst at a university, and we'll get into all that. And for our listeners, we will be doing a call-in segment later, the shit you hear in the office. So if you have a uh, office story, whether you, a wild office story, whether you heard it or experienced it, give us a call and uh, we'll get you, we'll listen to your shit you hear in the office. So, all right, Drew, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? All right. So that's a loaded question. So we're going to have to go back a little bit. Uh, we're going to have to go back to high school. So when I was in high school, like probably most everybody that's out there listening to this podcast right now, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? I've got to you know, stop mooching off my parents. I've actually got to figure out something, try and make them proud, try and figure out something to make my life fulfilling. And I knew from a pretty early age that I wanted to do something that helped people that couldn't help themselves. And so that kind of made me hone in on a couple of aspects of a career. The first one was military. Um, I decided pretty early on that I wanted to go the military route. And I actually looked at going to the Air Force Academy. I was blessed to get some appointments to the Air Force Academy, some ROTC scholarships. Uh, but unfortunately, right before I was getting ready to ship out and, and start doing that in college, I, I was unable to pass the physical exam because my eyesight was horrible and it had fallen right under that threshold where they would give me a waiver. And so I lost all my scholarships, couldn't go to the academy, but uh, there were some other doors that were open for me. I ended up going to college. I majored in criminal justice. And then through that, I actually became a police officer in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm originally from Rome, Georgia. Rome, Georgia is my hometown. Um, after college, moved back to Atlanta and started working for the DeKalb County Police Department just as a, a basic grunt police officer, you know, out there humping 911 calls. And so I was able to have a great impact on people's lives. I was able to do some stuff out there on the street. But one day my supervisor came up to me and he tapped me on the shoulder and he's like, hey, Drew. I was like, yeah, Sarge. And he was like, uh, I've got a position open that I think you'd be good at. And this was about three years into my career. And he said, we've got a crime analysis unit. <clears throat> and I was looking at your resume. I've heard you talk about it. I see that you've got a master's in business and you did some analysis work there. And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, I want you to put in for this. I think you'd be good for it. So I put in for it. Uh, I got the position and went and started working for the DeKalb County Police 
crime analysis unit. And DeKalb's unit was all sworn officers. And so this is kind of weird. I don't know if it's still done this day to this day. Like, I think there are some departments out there that have, you know, sworn personnel doing the job of law enforcement analysts, but it's gone more civilian now. But back then, we would work up our own analytical products. Like if you had a spree or something going on, you would identify some suspects. You'd go arrest them. You'd go swear out the warrants. You'd go do the affidavits. You'd go, you know, work your caseload pretty much. And so being a detective there, like, uh, you know, was very fulfilling. And I had a whole lot of fun, like, kind of diving into this whole realm of crime analysis, intel analysis, basically solving puzzles. And just to let your listeners know, this that's something that's big about me is I love solving puzzles. And so the crime analysis field, like, dude, that just let me live out my fantasy in that, <laughs> right? Solving problems, uh, working the puzzles, and then catching the bad guy. And so that's kind of how I got into the profession, how I discovered the profession. Up until my sergeant came and tapped me on the shoulder, I knew nothing about crime analysis, any of that. Um, but I was blessed to kind of be at the right place at the right time and get my foot in the door. And it's led to a great career and I've loved it ever since. Yeah. My first reaction to that, I find it funny that your eyesight was uh, not good enough for the air force, but it was okay for the police department. (laughs) Ah, so yeah, that's a great point, Jason. And so like funny enough back then, like the air force, like LASIK surgery was this new thing. They had done some experiment on bunnies or something where they, you know, gave the bunnies LASIK surgery and their eyes exploded when they put them on like, they're like 12 G's, like something that was, you know, humanly impossible. You pass out probably 12, 13 G's, but the air force was like, eh, you know, LASIK scary. But when I went police, they were like, yeah, get LASIK surgery. So now I have better in 2020 and it's been great for like 20 years, but air force was scared of it back then. Yeah. And so I, I think it's interesting. You got me thinking here is I, I wonder if there is a analyst unit out there that's all sworn because you are right. The tendency is to go civilian, uh, mainly because of the cost, right? It's, it's civilians to the department are cheaper than having sworn. So to have that, uh, there's that the shift there. One of the reasons to shift there is it is cheaper to have civilians in that position as opposed to swarm. But I, I do remember that the, in in some of the first analyst units that I worked at at police departments, it was sworn officers, maybe light duty, maybe if they got themselves into trouble and lost their police powers or were under investigation themselves or something like that, that they tucked them away in a in a office role and one of those would have been analyst unit you know in the analyst unit but it does make me wonder if there are any units out there in the u.s that are all sworn at the moment and honestly jason i would be really surprised if anybody was 100 percent sworn nowadays like i do know there are departments out there that supplement um with sworn officers especially in the intel world because that's kind of that's still kind of like a sacred cow for police departments, right? They really want their intel analysts for whatever reason. Some of it I get, some of it I don't get, but they want those intel analysts to be sworn. Um, But yeah, like most departments, I would say you have some sort of hybrid thing in place, especially when it comes to supervision. So you may have crime analysts that work underneath a command structure, or maybe it's a sworn officer. Um, And we can talk about that a little bit later, but that's an interesting dynamic. And, you know, kind of using your experts where they're needed, right? And I think that's why you've seen this shift over to civilians, because civilians, 
maybe they have the GIS training, right? They're going to be very good at that particular thing where it's harder to train up an officer who's really good at swearing out warrants, you know, doing that sort of stuff, arresting people. They're just totally different skill sets. So I kind of see why, why that's kind of shifted over time. Yeah. So I guess talk about your transition then, because as you mentioned, you were three years in, you didn't have any idea about analysis until the sergeant brought it to your attention. So how was the transition for you going from sworn officer uh, out out in the streets to then taking the analyst role in the analyst unit? Yeah, so I got to be honest, the main reason why I initially took the job was I got holidays off, right? Um, three years in, DeKalb was very much kind of uh, seniority based. So if you wanted to get Thanksgiving or Christmas off, then you would have to have been there for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I had just had a kiddo uh, when I started working for DeKalb and I hadn't been at home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Um, just because that's the way it worked with seniority. So three years in, I was kind of like, man, I, I want to look for something, some opportunity where I can be at home with the kids, maybe get some holidays, some weekends off. And uh, with this particular unit, I was able to do that. And so that's why I n- initially got into it. But the transition um, honestly wasn't that bad. And I went from, as I said, humping 911 calls, because with 911 calls, you never know what you're going to get, right? It's always you kind of get that adrenaline dose every day. Like if you're an adrenaline junkie, that's the best thing, man, is getting 911 calls, going into hot situations, taking care of those things. But with the crime analysis unit, because I was sworn, like you still kind of got those adrenaline dumps, but they were in smaller doses, right? Whenever we were serving warrants on, say, like, um, you know, like some bank robbers or something like that, or some sexual assault suspects that were responsible for multiple sexual assaults, you still had that little bit of adrenaline uh, dump, but they were few and far between. Um, most of our time was kind of spent more behind a desk, more behind a computer screen, doing the heavy lifting on a lot of paperwork and stuff like that. So in some aspects, it was a great blessing. In some aspects, um, you know, did I miss like humping those 911 calls and like working, you know, on the street? Absolutely. Um, but it was better for family. It was better for me. And I, it just fit my skill set a little bit better if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I am uh, grinning like, uh, and this is the immature in me. I know I consider myself old man elder, but once in a while I'll be immature. I, I You're saying humping the calls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Maybe that's just a Georgia term, man. That's like, like in the cab, that's what we called it. Like, hey, you're going to go hump this call? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just what we called it there. Maybe, I, maybe that's, Maybe I'm just not one of the hip Gen Z guys, but yeah, man. I actually thought it was the other way around because, I mean, Mindy uh, Yoon is always picking on me because he calls me old man elder because I'm not up to speed on all the hip terms. So I thought, well, maybe that's a new term that I just never heard of. Yeah, and as I said, I don't know. Sometimes it really felt like that, though, like especially with people that called you multiple times. You've been there already five times in the night, man. It really felt like you were humping the call. So (laughs) it's probably appropriate. (laughs) <laughs> all right all right so and that's interesting all right so let's get into some badge stories then and for th- this is uh the analyst badge story and those for that may be new to the show the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works and so for you we have two of them and it's 2008 it's in DeKalb county here 
and you are working a uh, you are working a robbery bank robbery series. Yeah. So I kind of want to preface this story a little bit. So DeKalb County's crime analysis unit had been going for a while before I got into it. Um, and so they were one of the I wouldn't call them original, but I would say they're definitely like a founding member of the crime analysis units that we see today in police departments. DeKalb County, over 1,200 officers back in the day. It's one of the metro counties that make up Atlanta. Um, So they had some resources and some time to invest in this. And so I'm going to tell a story where I worked a serial bank robbery case, but a couple years before I got there, these guys were featured on the Rush Limbaugh show. And um, if if you've ever seen the show Numbers, like our unit Mm -hmm. uh, was used as consultants on the very first pilot episode of Numbers. Um, that hmm. case was actually an Atlanta DeKalb County case. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'm you know, finding myself in in this unit. Mm-hmm. And so I get there. They send me off to some training because, once again, brand new to this whole crime analysis things. Um, and if y'all have ever been there, like y'all know all the, the training that's out there, right? The Alpha Group guys, uh, any of your specialized training, um, the GIS, like I'm doing all this stuff. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. And I find myself thinking, is this just a bunch of voodoo? Like, does this stuff really work? (laughs) Like, you know, I've been out there, you know, taking calls. Like, I can catch the bad guy. I know where the, you know, the bad areas of the county are. Um, But the predictive policing thing always kind of just struck me as, yeah, just nonsense. Until this particular case hit. So let me kind of set it up for you. So around Atlanta, if any of y'all are familiar with this, there's like a, there's a perimeter, right? It's 285 in Atlanta. And uh, we had some bank robbers uh, that were going around like the perimeter right there into cab. And uh, we started running this through kind of some of the measurements that we have for predictive policing. Like we started looking at it on paper and our banks were just getting killed. And this was one of the commercial banks that I'm sure everybody's familiar with. I believe it was uh, Wells Fargo. Or Bank of America, one of those, I've forgotten the exact bank, but a commercial bank. And these guys were targeting just those banks. So now we're about eight or nine incidents into this series. And these guys identified themselves and they had a calling card and uh, they would always like bust into the bank. There was four of them and they would say, you know what time it is. And mm. like, of course, these patrons don't know what time it is. They don't even know who these guys are. But that was their funny thing. They just thought it was the coolest thing to say, you know what time it is with their mask and their shotguns blazing. So we were very uh, sure of ourselves when we started linking these together. So we ran it through the analysis and we figured out they were like hitting very specific days. And that was kind of shrinking. And if any of y'all out there know your analysts, like it kind of changes. The series changes over time. Um, but these guys, we figured out they were going to hit on this day and in this area, and they were actually working their way around a geographical area. And so, uh, we set up on two banks, me and my partner were on one bank and we had some other people set up on another bank and sure as you know what, (laughs) these guys show up at the exact time we said they were, and they showed up not at the bank that I was at, but at the other bank. Um, they came in, they said, you know what time it is. And on their way out, our officers engaged the suspect. They ended up getting into a shootout with our officers. Um, they were able to hop in their car. They had a wheel man, like they had planned this stuff out. And the reason why they were going around 285 is they always hit banks right off the interstate so they could get on the interstate real quick. Long story short, like we jumped on them, we were able to get them. But from that moment on, that's when I said to myself, this stuff worked. Like, it's not voodoo. It's not like hanky, 
hinky pinky whatever i was like if you have a good series and like you're able to go through the science and plug it into some of this geographic and predictive policing models like it worked um and so to me that was just a, a great indicator that hey i need to keep on going to training i need to stick with that because i can make a difference and we got those dangerous thugs off the street too so super yeah. happy yeah, and I, I think it's fascinating when you have a series and you have a good story, a good outcome like that, it it makes you wonder why doesn't that happen more often? And, you know, bank robberies in particular are are different from a lot of other types of crime, right? I think when you get into the geographic profiling and you're working a series and you're trying to uh, create uh, a forecast that, you know, with other crimes, there could be just a lot of noise to the point where you don't even know what cases you, that are linked to the same set of suspects, right? It's I, I feel that once you get to the point as an analyst or a detective that you can link all the same crimes together, that's where all the science can come in and really help the investigation. But to get to that point can be really difficult because of the quality of data. And, you know, there are a lot of people, uh, criminals have figured that out too, right? That they're not leaving calling cards there so you can link all these crimes together and catch them, right? They're, they're smartening up too to the point that they're becoming, uh, you know, they want to be uh, less suspicious and not leave that calling card. Absolutely. But I will say, like, in my experience, a lot of the times the calling cards are made on like an unconscious level, right? Like, I don't even think these bank robbers were really thinking of it as a, like a calling card. It was just part of their fantasy. For whatever reason, they just envision themselves in the Wild West or robbing banks or something and just saying, you know what time it is. And I don't yeah. think even in their brightest or whatever most lucid moments would they think, hey, the cops are going to link all this up. But going back to what you said, I think a lot of departments – and we were lucky in DeKalb because we had the flexibility to actually be able to work our cases and look through stuff. Um, but they're just so inundated with cases, especially in mm -hmm. big departments. It's just another bank robbery. And at the end of the day, bank robberies, FBI, right? Why are we even going to waste time and effort on armed bank robberies? Because ultimately, FBI is going to work that. Um, and I will say, after we caught these guys, we had some interviews with the FBI. And they were like, how did y'all latch into this? And we told the story. And I believe that led to them kind of doing some training. They asked about, like, you know, the training and what series model we put it through. Um, but, yeah, it's just having the time to be able to actually sift through the data and figure out these are the same guys and can we make a difference on it? Yeah, because I think, too, once you do have the, the geographic profile or you have the characteristics of the series, then... When you're doing the forecast, then you can look out to see what are potential targets, right? And I think that's yes. where bank robberies, again, are different because there's only so many banks yes. in, in that area, right? It is, you know, once you get the time of day down and and the, get the, the what some will refer as the hunting area, then there's only so many banks that are going to fit their target. You mentioned coming off a highway. Well, there's only so many banks that are going to be within a short distance of a highway. And that, Correct. that that plays into it as well to make it a little bit easier for the forecast. Absolutely. And with these guys, talking to them afterwards, they actually came clean on all of it. Um, 
but they had basically said we only hit this type of bank because the layout was the same. They knew where the safe was going to mm. be. They knew what the security measures were in place. So that's why they only hit, you know, fill in the blank of this commercial bank type. That's what they were comfortable with. Yeah, that, that's that's that is fascinating. That that is one of the reasons why why they hit it. And you know, when they go through and they're they're trying to figure out the best best place because they probably did some dry runs they probably look through this like how would how would we do this if we if we are to do it and you know i i think that's another thing what geographic profiling uh, teaches us is that they become familiar with that particular area and comfortable and they don't want to go outside of where they live work or play and you know that because uh if they're outside of that area, not comfortable with that area, they they feel that they'll they'll stick out more. And I'm grateful that they do that because criminals, there's two things I've banked on. One, criminals aren't that smart. And number two, they're creatures of habit. So mm-hmm. thank you, criminals out there. I hope <laughs> you're not listening to this. But if you are, you know, keep up your your stupidity and your, you know, you're doing the same thing over and over again. I appreciate you. Yeah, and it is amazing to me though too that I've had several guests on here, and um, you know, the, I'm really surprised how many robberies folks can get away with before they do get caught. Because in terms of the bank, it, it's it. it probably should at least have one of it number one there's sometimes a guard there on on site and number two the, every bank has a camera system yeah and what we found with this particular bank system in atlanta and once again this is 20 years ago so this may have changed mm-hmm. but uh these guys knew that the branch rotated one or two police officers around so they would have a guard that was on duty but only at certain times then the guard would leave and go to the next branch down the road. And so they had timed that out. And that was one of the you know chinks in the armor that the bank had kind of set their, themselves up for failure on. Um, and the bad guys took advantage of it. It is interesting them finding their weak points. It also reminds me as I've talked to folks that have done fraud and <laughs> Bank of America was a good example. Bank of America you could hit the same Bank of America branch three or four times with like the same the same scam before because they weren't Bank of America wasn't connected. So you could hit like one Bank of America five minutes later, you could hit the same the different branch down the road with the same type of thing and the same the same ide- identity fraud and all that other stuff. And the system wouldn't pick it up because they weren't connected. So it's 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 interesting criminals find that weak spot, right? Like where, you know, just like you will talk a little bit about security later and threats and all that other stuff. What are those weak points? Like how can we infiltrate this system? And honestly, like as my career has gone on, I see going back to your point of why aren't these robberies solved or, you know, why are people allowed to shoplift? So it's complacency, right? These victims, especially businesses, not necessarily individuals, but there's a shrink rate that's already computed into their model. And as long as they don't lose more than 5% or whatever, then those businesses, like, eh, who cares if we catch them? I just lost my 5%. That's my budget for the year. And the bank, the money's, you know, backed up by the FDIC. So that money's going to come back. Um, so 
you know, sometimes it's hard to get businesses to buy in, right? Um, yeah. Especially on large corporations and stuff. No, there's value in protecting this stuff and, you know, not rotating your guards at the exact same time and not laying out your bank in exactly the same fashion. Um, it's just hard to make them understand that sometimes. Yeah. And it's it's interesting you say 5% because it makes me think I, I read an article, well, I can't remember where it was from, but those self-checkout lines that you're seeing all over the place and Walmart, Target and the grocery stores, um, the the businesses know that they're going to lose 5 percent mm-hmm. um, either through intentional theft or accidental. Mm-hmm. Right. And but in that model, they can say that's still cheaper than paying employees there to scan everything. Yeah. Right? And so it's all know, risk yeah. management. Mm-hmm. So that is that is interesting um, that. You know, and uh, I actually, you know, you mentioned about the same layout. I was like, oh, well, I actually, in, ter- in terms of these uh, big, uh, you know, stores and whatnot, I wish they all were the same. You know, when I go to a Walmart, I wish the I wish the department was always in the same section. It would help me out when I go to a different one or Home Depot or Lowe's. It would be nice if they all were the same. It'd help me uh, help me find stuff easier. 100%. We have this grocery store here in Houston. It's called H-E-B. And like, there's two stores that I go to that are near my house. And like, one of them is flipped opposite and it always screws me up. It's like, I just want to find the mashed potatoes, man. I'm just trying to get out of here. And I can never find the mashed potatoes because the stores just confuse me so much. Yeah, no, I think, uh, well, I think they're meant to, you know, that's, you don't know all kinds of psychology and buying rates and all this other stuff. Like, I think they want you to go down each aisle because what you'll eventually see something that's not on your list that you'll buy. <laughs> right. Absolutely. ATB, I'm on to you. Like you put the bacon bits next to the mashed potatoes, I'm on to you, guy. I see what you're doing. I'm not mad at you, but I see. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because I well, I mean, we can get into the whole conversation of that. Like there's this whole idea of buying stuff online and having you know the employees buy shop for you and then you having it having it out front there. To me, it takes away that impulse buy. So I think I do wonder if enough people did that, that that would be detrimental to the stores, I would think. Um, but I don't you know, know that because I do know that you obviously if you're just doing a purchase, you don't there's no impulse buy at all. So the end aisle influence doesn't have any impact on that. Very true. And I guarantee you, if I start hurting like their bottom line, you know what's going to happen. They'll start pricing it up or do something to make up mm-hmm. for that lost revenue. So these businesses yeah. aren't stupid in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's interesting. Okay, well, let's move on to your second story there, more serious one. This this deals with it's still 2008, and this deals with a serial rapist. Yeah. So this series, and uh, this was after it may have been late 2008, early 2009, around in that time frame. Um, but this is after I've gone to some criminal profiling, uh, behavioral profiling classes with the FBI. Um, I was blessed to work with some mentors that really kind of helped me through this process. So two case types that I can throw out that there, if you're a new analyst, serial bank robbers and serial sexual assault cases, like these are definitely creatures of habit. I've had a lot of success in my career in working both of those types of uh, serial and spree cases. So if you're looking for something to kind of get your feet wet, like, yeah, start reading through those reports. So here we are, late 2008, 2009. We get this serial rapist uh, that's over in one of our apartment complexes um, in DeKalb, uh, formerly actually my old beat. So I was very familiar with this area. Um, 
And so started working up the series and we got onto this rapist number one because he was hitting pretty frequently. Um, we're talking about somebody was actually getting raped, um, you know, every week or so around in the area of this complex. And for any of y'all that are out there, that is not good for the police department. That is not good for county leadership when those types of assaults and crimes are taking place. And there was a lot of public outcry about mm -hmm. this guy. And we linked up this guy because he had a very specific um, kink um, about him and what he would do to his victims. Um, it was something that was, you know, strange enough. Uh, where it kind of stuck out. It wasn't just your typical kind of like rape. And so we were actually able to match up these cases together. So my unit and I, we start going through all the cases. We start looking at, you know, typical things, days between hits. We start mapping the stuff out. Um, and I had just attended a class over in Charleston, South Carolina. And I apologize. I forget the name of the class, but it was basically... Um, a class where you could put in all the incident locations and it would come out with a model of an area of significance. And like the model didn't tell you what the area of significance was. Maybe it was a house. Um, maybe it was a workplace, but it was something that the suspect, it was significant in some shape, form or fashion, just based off geographical data. So we ran this through the algorithm. Um, the cases continued as we're trying to, you know, work between the or work behind the scenes to figure out this who this guy was. But some things that were noted in this case spiraling. Right. This guy started kind of in the middle, like geographically, it started just spreading out a little bit, um, very kind of tight, all still within two or three miles uh, but we got on to him enough where we figured out, once again, where he was going to be. We figured out he had gotten into a pattern on uh, days between hits and times where we were pretty confident he was going to hit. And so once again, much like the bank robbery story, we had some plainclothes officers. We had us out there. We were in this kind of area of the apartment complex where all this was going on. Woman walks out, out, out of her apartment and uh, basically is confronted by this individual because we had been working with community outreach and some other things. Uh, residents were aware that this was going on. And so we had told people that, you know, if they're outside walking, get on your cell phone real quick and call us. She did that. She scared him off to the point where he took off running. Our plain clothes were able to catch him. Um, but this is an individual just prototypical, like, uh, you know, rapist that we wanted to get off the street because not only was he assaulting women, he was getting more violent. And that kind of fits into the, the profile, the behavioral profile we had on this guy. Um, he started off just with verbal threats. He had moved to where basically he was holding a gun to women's heads while in the commission of the acts that he was requesting from them. Um, and so this was somebody that we wanted to get off the streets and just reiterated to me once again, not only does it work in serial bank robbery cases, but it works in sexual assaults. And now, oh, by the way, the behavioral profiling stuff works. And not to the point where we were like, hey, it's going to be this age male and he's going to work in like a factory or anything like that. But it was correctly pointing out the fact that he was going to escalate. And if we didn't get him off the street, he was going to end up killing somebody. And in post interviews with him, that's exactly what he said. He said he started off with like a fantasy. He would have the victims play it out all on him um, or he play it out on them. And then he said the next step in his fantasy was he wanted to kill somebody in the commission of one of these acts. And so uh, was happy to get him off the street. Once again, the crime analysis worked. The geographical profiling kind of going back to that. So he ended up living in this apartment complex. 
which is kind of weird because these guys usually don't hunt where they eat, so to speak. Uh, but this guy was only like basically would walk out of his apartment complex, uh, walk, in the, you know, a little distance away and then attack uh, females as they were coming out of their their apartment. So. So would he take them back into their apartment to, to assault them? Is that what he would do? No, he would actually drag them. This was kind of a forested apartment complex so he would drag them off into the wood line oh, out of sight um and then he would either gag them so they couldn't yell or something like that oh wow all right and so how many assaults did he get have before he was caught so if i remember correctly we were right at 10 so this is going to be nine or 10 incidents i think that he was good for nine and he was in the commission of his 10th uh, when the lady scared him off and was able to contact us. Uh, but yeah, we were right at nine or 10. Yeah. And that is, that's some scary stuff there. Um, and again, I, it's one, one apartment complex, you know, even though I'm, I'm guessing it's probably fairly large. Um, yes, very large. And so that, again, if you know that hunting ground, um, it makes it a little bit easier um, to predict and try to to do that. I, I guess I was uh, a, a little surprised on the frequency. As you mentioned, it was going on weekly there, and you you got you got into like eight or nine there before before he was he was caught. Um, and so, but there's definitely you know combination of of things with the science and getting the word out and educating the public and and everything else certainly helps solve that crime. And this is one of those age-old things that, once again, I'm sure everybody out there struggles with. So in DeKalb, we were large enough where we had a sexual assault unit, um, and these guys were handling these cases. And unfortunately, that area where we're at, we had you know over a million people that lived in the county. So there were a lot of sexual assault crimes that were taking place. So it took a while for us, being separate from the you know the sexual assault unit, to get a hold of these reports, start looking at it, then matching it up. So by the time we actually started laying eyes on it, we're probably four or five cases into it, and a month has passed. Um, so it just takes time for analysts to become aware of things. Uh, it's just the natural progression, once again, in these very large departments where you're not able to read every report every day and there's competing you know, things that have to be done. It just takes time to actually put the right set of eyeballs on it and start working the case. Yeah. And uh, th that's tough though, right? That's, a, that's a tough, what you just said there, you know, as, as a former analyst and as someone that's dealt with the data of the police department and all of its issues that I understand that, but as the, for the society to hear that, the community to hear that, like there's, they don't want to hear that it's going to take nine rapes before this guy is caught, right? That's, that's what becomes difficult is that, you know, the, the idea of uh, the difficulty or explaining how it got to that is with the data, but it's, uh, you get a society or community that is, doesn't want to hear that. And I sympathize with the community. One victim is too many on any of these crimes. Um, and I think we've gotten better that, at that as police departments and especially as analysts. What I always tell new analysts is figure out your baseline. I am all about baseline modeling just so that you can kind of filter out the noise, so to speak. 
Like if you're at your baseline, then it's just, you're kind of at, you know, it's just normal. But if you start seeing a spike in rapes going up, especially in geographical areas, if you're not looking at maps, if you're not printing this stuff out, but you just have rape after rape on top of each other in small areas of, uh, you know, geography in a very short period of time, you may have an issue. Um, and so just figuring out your baseline and then look for, so you can filter out the background noise so you can kind of look at things that are going over and beyond your baseline, that's not normal. And that's just another way to assist the analysts and assist departments in trying to figure out and look at what needs to be worked. Yeah, I guess it, and this is certainly a loaded question, but I mean, do you have any thoughts on maybe how things could be different? Because you, you come in, you spent some time as a, in patrol, you spent some time in investigations, spent some time as analysts, and you talked about the, you know, the sexual assault uh, um, unit was was tied up and that analysts don't have the time or the resources to read every um, case but somebody some somehow some way there's got to we need to improve on the fact of getting these uh, series, uh, these patterns identified more quicker? Yeah. So that definitely is a loaded question. And I, I would say that my answer kind of depends on what aspect that you want to look at, but mm-hmm. I will tell you one of the things that we still struggle with, and this is post nine 11, this is, you know, even current to today is police departments still sandbox stuff. Um, and I know that there have been a lot of efforts that have been tried, um, you know, to kind of break down the barriers, But if you're in a larger department and so, you know, I'm friends with a lot of HPD analysts, so I know kind of how their their operations work. And I'm friends with people still over in DeKalb. But if you have units that are assigned to work, say, just bank robberies or just sexual assaults, they kind of lay claim to that. And they build up the walls where it's like, hey, we're working this. It's our stuff. It's our job. And it's hard sometimes just to sit down and facilitate the conversations that need to be had. And I think it's an aspect of just being humble in your own skills. Um, and I, I'm guilty of this too early in my career. Hey, this is my case. I don't want anybody else looking at it. But if you approach it of the aspect of we're all on the same team and we're all trying to solve the same sort of crimes and we're all going to take the credit if it if it solves and we're all going to be sad if it doesn't, but really just setting up those communication meth- like uh, methodologies and mechanisms internally for analysts to sit in on, say, like CID meetings or analysts to go down and just actually talk to uniform and see what they're seeing out on the street. If you're not talking and you're not involved in those meetings, then you're already shooting yourselves in the foot. Um, and especially as a civilian, kind of seeing both sides of that, because we'll get to this, but I transitioned over to a civilian role. Um, but sometimes it's hard for civilians and police officers to coexist. But you've got to insert yourself and you've got to be in those meetings because knowledge really is power in the crime analysis and intelligence analysis field. Hi, my name is Rhea Gerstenkorn, and my advice to you is to not be that analyst that people refer to as to what not to do. You don't want to be that person. So make sure that your products are of quality. Make sure that you're doing what you need to do. Ask questions if you're not sure, but don't be the reference point of what not to do. Hi, this is Jim Mallard. I'm the Crime Analysis Division Manager for the Houston Police Department. This is my public service announcement. This is a reminder from the people around you. Please don't make us listen to your half of your phone calls. If we're in a line or on a bus or in an elevator, 
or some other captive situation we can't get out of, please be kind and hang up the damn phone. Yeah. Was that, did you transition when you went to Lincoln then from sworn to civilian? Yeah. Um, so after I got done with the cab, I, I was a sworn officer, and then um, we can get to it here if you want to, but yeah, I gave up the badge, I gave up the gun, and then went over to Lincoln and uh, was a manager for them over their crime analysis and intelligence unit. Yeah, so what went into that decision? Because that's a pretty, there's several levels there. You were from Georgia, you're moving out of state, and you're you're leaving the sworn aspect to it to become civilian. Absolutely. And so this was purely a career move uh, for me. I had just, um, I was promoting it up to sh- uh, sergeant over in DeKalb County. So I kind of had to make a decision. And with that sergeant role, I was going to have to go back on the streets. Um, so I was going to have to come out of the crime analysis thing. I was going to have to go back to the streets for a while. And then as a supervisor, maybe the opportunity would come up to, to move back. So I sat down with my wife, uh, sat down with my kiddos, and we kind of just had a discussion about what do we want to do and what do we want to achieve as a family going forward. And so I knew that I still wanted to help people, those people that couldn't help themselves. So I didn't want to get out of law enforcement. Um, but I did kind of decide that, hey, maybe I can go the civilian route on this. And this is back when, you know, a lot of departments, I think this is 2010 or so, a lot of departments were starting to uh, transition the crime analysis fields over to civilians. And so I saw an advertisement for Lincoln Police Department and hooked up with a guy named Tom Cassidy, (laughs) one of my all-time favorite people. Uh, If you don't know who Tom Cassidy is, Tom Cassidy is probably one of the godfathers of crime analysis, uh, who became my mentor had a great conversation with him and he hired me to come and run his crime analysis and intelligence unit out there in Lincoln and never been to Lincoln, Nebraska. So it really was a leap of faith. But for me, it was a way to now transition over to being a civilian. And when I told you earlier in the call where being at home at Christmas, trying to have weekends off, trying to balance family and career and still do something that I love, this kind of made sense to me. And thankfully, my wife is super portable. She's a nurse. Uh, so she was like, sure, let's go to Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, you know, and so we went there and that was kind of like the next step in my career ladder. And then also kind of transitioning over to the civilian role. All right. So uh, and we get, don't have too much time to spend on your time in Lincoln. Well, I want to get to MD Anderson. But I guess with your time in, in Lincoln, what maybe what are some things that you achieved while you're there? What are the things that you learned? Man, Lincoln was such a great experience uh, for me. Um, they taught me so much and just kind of working underneath Tom, like he taught me so much just as a a leader. He really kind of upped my leadership tool bag and my managerial tool belt, so to speak. But one of the things he kind of put me over was the Intel system. Um, so I completely redesigned the way that Lincoln police uh, collected and kind of stored, uh, Intel. So if any of y'all are familiar, 28 CFR 23 was a huge aspect of something that I had to put in place in Lincoln. And then also he uh, let me build out the real-time crime center there. So it really was just a bunch of cool projects that I got to work on, hopefully help them out. And then I also got my feet wet with threat management, which is going to be an important part of the MD Anderson. Yeah. And that, again, we don't have much time to spend on Lincoln there, but I do want to get to MD Anderson now because um, I think it is fascinating. And you talked a little bit about it in the prep call. Let's let's talk about MD Anderson University of Texas police, because there's very few uh, university police departments would have 
analysts. But there's a special reason why uh, you have a couple of analysts there at MD Anderson in the University of Texas, please. Yeah. So moving over to MD Anderson, this is 2014 or so. Uh, University of Texas Police Department. I didn't know what I was getting into. And honestly, this is the point in my career. And I always tell people this is this is where I became a prostitute. Right. MD <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> I, I just. I'm selling myself out to the highest bidder Uh, and I am extremely blessed in my current role where, you know, I am graciously compensated for the work that I do. And I'm super happy with them for that because it's opened up a lot of doors for me, but MD Anderson is unique. You perhaps you've heard of them, you know, cancer hospital, number one in the world. Uh, But they have a lot of nuclear devices and stuff on campus that they use for research uh, that they use for treatment Um, And so there are federal guidelines and state guidelines that are in place that says if you have these nuclear devices, you have to have X amount of guns um, to guard those devices. And so also University of Texas, it's a university. MD Anderson's a a university arm. So there was the tower shooting that you may be familiar Mm -hmm. with over at UT Austin. The Constitution says you have to have your own police department. So our police department, we have over 350 personnel. um, And that's a combination of non-sworn like security officers, police officers, and then analysts. We probably have a team of eight to nine analysts. uh, And within those analysts, there's different jobs, but probably there are three to four of us that do crime and intelligence analysis. Um, And so I'm it's kind of crazy, but we handle all sorts of cases here. And when I got into it, I didn't know what I was getting into. But it's crazy the stuff that we see over here in the med center in Houston. Yeah, so it, it's interesting your your progression because you've touched on a lot of different disciplines that are inside of law enforcement analysis, uh, whether that be um, crime analysis, intelligence analysis, um, uh, case support, and you got into the manager side, you got into the development side in terms of uh, real-time crime center. And I guess talk a little bit about this threat assessment side, because I'm just like everything, I'm sure there's going to be similarities, but I'm sure there are glaring differences as well comparing those to the other disciplines. Absolutely. So if y'all have not heard of threat management out there as analysts, go start Googling it now because Crime analysis is a transitioning kind of like area, right? Even over my career, it's changed. New things get added. But this threat analyst uh, thing is going to be hot and heavy here in the coming years. And so threat management is basically working cases where there is some sort of threat, but the goal is not necessarily an arrest. And so like the perfect case that I can think of is disturbing emails to somebody, right? These are emails where like a a threat is not explicitly stated. Like, it's not like I'm going to kill you, but maybe it's kind of like a stalking or maybe it's just a case that kind of gives you uneasy feelings. And so when you look at this individual, maybe they have mental health concerns, but there's something else that's going on behind the scenes where this person is going to be a long-term problem. And so what threat management does is it goes in and it tries to figure out the level of risk. And then it tries to put a safety plan in place and a way to hopefully mitigate the risk to a point where this person is never going to go away, but you have some sort of plan in place where you can monitor them long term and hopefully keep them from having a disastrous outcome. Um, so school shootings are another kind of you know classic thing where threat management is used. You want to 
latch on to the person and hopefully mitigate the, the risk, whatever that looks like, whether it's um, maybe it's arresting, but maybe it's just knocking on their door once a month and be like, hey, how are you doing? Are you taking your meds? Are you going you know, to your counseling sessions, whatever that looks like so that you don't have the outcome of, you know, mass school shootings and stuff like that. And so there's a lot of departments that are trying to do that. And MD Anderson UT police is one of those. And we have a great threat management unit and something that I'm pretty heavily involved with now. Fascinating, because I always think that when I see in the news, you know, really bad cases or really bad situations happening. And it, it, one of the things I think of often is is there's a limit to what a police department can and should do, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, there's certain things that police departments do really well, and there's other things that will they struggle with. And so I, I want to get your take a little bit on this because you're dealing with a threat assessment, you're dealing with prevention. You're, you know, this can get into the idea of SEPTED, crime prevention through environmental design, mm-hmm. but it, that does get outside of that, you know, core of the role of the police department and even gets into other departments in a city or a community, right? And so I guess my maybe my question is, do you feel that this idea of doing the threat assessment, of doing this prevention, is a police department task? Or is this something that you you think would be better to be more of a citywide endeavor? So I think that's a great question, Jason, and you're hitting the nail on the head, right? Because classical police departments are not geared for threat management. If I, as an officer, told my supervisor that I was going to take myself out of service to try and help somebody through a mental health episode, like back in the day, I would have been told, no, get back in service. Um, Most police officers and police agencies are set up to make an arrest, take a report, move on. It's just quick fixes to the problem. And what we've seen is... The community doesn't have an appetite for that, right? There are so many times when police officers are the first responder to incidents that are a whole lot more deep and a whole lot more nuanced than just making an arrest and moving on. And so going to your question of do police officers, should they be involved with that? I'm going to say yes. Um, Like it or not, police officers are going to always be presented with, unfortunately, being the first responder and a lot of these incidents that don't necessarily have a criminal predicate, somebody that's in mental health crisis, you know, the police officers are probably going to be the person that responds to that scene. And if you just do a report and you move on without doing anything else to that situation, then you're not helping that person. And you're also setting yourself up potentially for failure uh, down the road. And so the way that MD Anderson has kind of designed this program is the police officers take the lead on it. So when we're presented with somebody that is giving someone an uneasy feeling, this, that, and another, we look into it, and then we start engaging other um, resources from around the hospital and from the institution. Maybe it's human resources, if it's a, an employee-like problem, um, maybe it's mental health, like our psychiatric services, if it's a mental health problem, um, whatever it is, 
we have endeavored a whole lot to try and work up our toolkit of community partners so that it's not just the police department that's flapping in the breeze. And that's the value. And I think the power in threat management is we've got to get away from police officers just trying to affect the rest and, and move on. I understand calls are pending and I understand that stuff is going on, but you have to have a way to look deeper and see what the real issues are if we're really going to have an effect on crime and some of these issues we see as a society yeah because i think it gets it i think it really gets murky when you get into certain situations where like okay where does where does the police role stop and where does the counseling or social services or other departments kick in and because you get into a situation where you know you you have officers with weapons and you can teach them certain counseling techniques, certain techniques to try to calm down the situation. And but then at some point in time, you, you need that may might need that counseling aspect to it. But then you're bringing counselors into a situation that may be dangerous. So are you then teaching them how to recognize dangerous situations and doing that. So it, it it's if it was easy, we would do a better job of it, right? Obviously, but it does get murky certain situations and each one's unique. And how do you how do you effectively create a policy that will have that have a the best outcome given that murkiness? I, and I think you're exactly right on point with the struggle that's always been there. Um, police officers are really good at some things and going through, you know, 28 weeks of police academy training, mental health and like dealing with those subjects was a very small part of that um, back in the early 2000s. But at the same time, and this is where I think threat management enters the picture, is you have to figure out which one of these individuals have the potential to be violent. And so threat management, we have this, um, you know, kind of like way that we parse out people. Um, And one of the distinctions that we make is this person just a howler, right? There are a lot of the times that people make threats and this, that, and another, and they're basically just big bullies, right? As soon as like they'll say something just because they know that they can lord over the situation or the person, and they're just howling. They're not going to be the type that is actually going to act and do something. So threat management, we try to go in and we look for the howlers and separate that from the people that if left to their own devices, if there's not some sort of intervention, um, and maybe you can't arrest this person, so maybe that's not a tool in the toolkit. But if they're not in some sort of supervision program referring them to mental health or something like that, whatever the, the safety plan is, that this, this person is going to kill somebody. And so it really is trying to take a different approach where the police is one small part of the total solution. And we have this fight even internally to this day. <laughs> we do visualizations. It's basically our version of a comp stat. But TMT has all these cases that are open. And TMT is our threat management team. Okay. Um, TMT has all these cases that are open. And we constantly have to do battle with the chief sometime. Well, why why do y'all have 50 cases are open? I want to see, you know, clearances. And you have to go back to threat management. It's not solving crimes. It's not clearing out cases with arrests or whatever. It's really supervising a person for as long as it takes. At least just a phone call doesn't have to be like daily touches. But just something is in place where you're checking in with mental health, you're checking in on the individual to make sure that they're not gravitating towards upping the risk threat level and actually causing harm to somebody in society. So 
this I'm going to call it a model. And if, I, if you can correct me if that's not the right term, but this model of going about it in a threat management uh, aspect, do you feel that this can work outside the university setting or is it because of the characteristics of the university lends itself to this threat this threat assessment model working i can 100 percent say that it works outside uh university settings because going back to lincoln lincoln also had set up a threat management unit and uh university of nebraska as one of the forefathers on staff um, that looked at threat management and, and developed this whole model, and you're exactly right, I think that's a, a great word for it, description. Um, and so it works in municipal settings. And But you have to have specific things in place. Lincoln was a very open sharing police department. So the sheriff's department used the same RMS system as the city police department. They were all kind of housed in the same place. So there was already great communication with other partners, um, not only within the, city, within the city, but also mental health, and everybody talked and was very open with each other. If you work for a department that's kind of closed and once again makes those sandboxes and builds those walls, it is threat management's probably not going to work for you because it really is based on having the tough conversations, knowing when you're operating outside kind of your expertise asking for help, which takes a lot of humbleness from people, but working as a team to try and affect positive solutions. So it has its limitations, but I, I believe absolutely it will work outside the university setting. Hmm. All right. So with the, the threat assessment model, where are the soft spots? Where are some of the, you know, struggles that that you've seen? Um, just uh, maybe some of the issues that you've seen. So it is extremely resource heavy. Uh, our threat management team, we probably have six detectives um, that are out there working cases and their caseloads are heavy. And you've got a lot of noise that's coming in. And there are some tools. Waiver 21 is one of them. There's a lot of assessment tools now that are starting to come out that aid detectives and analysts and kind of not quickly, but, you know, in a timely fashion, fashion, processing violent, potentially violent offenders, um, processing domestic violence. There's some different tools for different areas that you're looking at, but trying to figure out who's a howler, who's just doing this for bravado and bluff um, and who's actually serious about this. But it takes time. And so those uh, the resources, you're going to need a pretty sizable unit and they're going to have to be able to work some long hours and carry like a pretty big caseload because you can't close these things out. These things aren't going away. So departments have to figure out um, kind of what those bumpers and you know things look like. What's an acceptable amount of risk or how deeply do we want to go on these individuals just just to to keep your people sane and, you know, working in a in an expedient fashion as much as possible. Okay. Um, time out a second, Drew. Um, I'm looking at the list here. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip. We I know we talked about other you know technology and cheaper solutions. I have an idea yeah. for that, but I'm actually I'm gonna talk to you offline about that. Okay, no problem. Um, and then I because I do want to get to tax lane, and I still have a couple questions. Did we cover everything you wanted to cover with the threat assessment? Yeah, 100 percent, okay. man. Okay, yeah. okay, great. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move on then, but I'm gonna. Just because I think we're going to be running out of time here, I want to, I want to sure, skip, totally that, understand. skip that section. All right. So I think uh, just moving on then, and this is a this is a great conversation so far, Drew. I really appreciate your time. And I guess 
you have a PhD, and I think it's fascinating. All the different guests I've had, I've had guests in there with their their highest education is is high school education, and yet they're they're a great analyst. So I, you know, I wanted to just move on to like more of a like advice or what what you thought in terms of education requirement for analysis. Yeah. So I don't think that it takes a rocket scientist to be an analyst. I think more than anything, it just takes a thirst for solving puzzles. Um, and it's a lot of the same things that make a good detective, right? Um, I have lots of friends in Georgia. You could just have like a GED or a high school diploma to to be a police officer. I knew some really great detectives uh, that just had that thirst for knowledge and just like pulling at strings and poking at things. So if that's, um, you know, I, I don't want analysts to think that you have to be super educated to do the job. I don't think that should be a barrier at all. All right, good. And I, I think to I, I I often think as I'm going on this journey with this podcast there's there's certain things that I I know were deficiencies in my skill set that ma- didn't make me a good analyst right there's there's there were certain aspects of the job number 1 I don't like to read <laughs> I don't <laughs> I I don't necessarily like trying to find a needle in a haystack that where it may or may not be there and um I'm not a very good writer Right. And I think, um, you know, I've gotten to the point where I'm more into the development side, more of the data management side. And that's really where I've honed my skills and career in that that fashion. But I, I do feel that there is this lacking of writing in the field mm. and that mm. if i'm talking to i've talked to military folks and people that are subject matter experts and in. in in certain like former CIA David Karens, like, I mean, writing, reading and writing were just trademarks of what they were doing as an analyst and, and writing stuff and producing stuff that other analysts can read and consume. And I, I, I do feel that there is this just lack of products out there um, for analysts to consume and to become subject matter experts in and a variety of of stuff uh, outside of the data that they may be getting from their records management system or their CAD. And I just I just wanted to get your take on that statement. Is is that something that you agree with or you don't agree with? And 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 just to get your take. Yeah. No. And I agree where you're coming from, right? I, I do believe um, you don't have to have a PhD to be a good writer. But one of the reasons why I got my PhD. Um, was because I did want to do independent research. And like you, Jason, I saw a deficiency in what was available to analysts that are out there. There's a lot of research and a lot of organizations that are focused on policing, right? You can go out there and find just years and years and a crap ton of knowledge about policing, but crime analysis is still a relatively new field and it changes from year to year as the technology changes and the requests that we put upon analysts change. And so I've been blessed. Uh, You know, I went through my Ph.D. My focus has always been like technology and kind of how technology works in policing. But I think up until this day, I've got seven publications that are out there that if you just go Google my name, you'll be able to find them. But they kind of run the gambit, everything from geographical profiling to uh, the most latest thing that's coming out later this year is navigating, like having what does a sworn and non-sworn security department look like? Like what are the benefits? What are the pitfalls to look out for? But yeah, we need people out there that love to read and look at research and then also create their own thoughts and tell us your success stories. Tell us, you know, what didn't work so well so that the new up and comers 
uh, that want to get into the field, they have a good foundation to work from. Yeah, and it's funny that I I don't know if it's because it's got profiling in the name and that's taboo. I I don't. It's funny I don't see that much about geographic profiling. And you can correct me if you think you've seen it a lot, but it does seem like um you know given that I learned about it you know going on 15 years ago, I don't see that much around, and I don't see it people talking about it. I don't see it on as many and resumes of my guests as I thought I would, given given that it's, you know, a couple decades old now. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. Like profiling is a bad word. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of my some of my circles, I talk it about profiling. They're like, ooh, police can't profile. And I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Criminal profiling, behavioral profiling, geographical profiling. And I think there are people that are putting out products like risk terrain modeling, is a good example of probably something that falls within geographical profiling, looking at businesses that lend themselves more towards crime indicators and then figuring out where to place your resources. So maybe it's just called something different. Good. All right. Well, let's uh, we're going to take some calls now. And uh, as I mentioned in the in the beginning of the show, we uh, we do a se- segment called uh, Shit You Hear in the Office. And these are stories that callers tell us that they've either heard or witnessed that happened in the office. And, you know, as uh, as you probably most people have seen, the police department can deal with a lot of different characters and a lot of different scenarios. All right, so we have some callers on the line. First up is Chris. Chris, what's some shit you heard in the office? So, you know, the latest one I heard in the office was a girl who's uh, one of the civilian analysts who's fundraising money for her sick cat. Her sick cat needs surgery, and it's going to cost a few thousand dollars, and she's kind of passing around the hat, and everyone everyone's supposed to chip in some money to help her cat. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, less caring and uh, less politically correct officers, you know, takes a round out of his uh, gun and uh, tosses it in the in the hat and says, you know, hey, I can cure this cat for less than a dollar uh, by killing it with this one bullet. And uh, a lot of us got a good chuckle out of that. But obviously, uh, the, the civilian analyst who was uh, caring for her cat didn't really uh, appreciate that. It's funny. I was just had a meeting with my family and somebody in the we had ever had a party and somebody mentioned that their dog ate so much chocolate. And they basically took it to the ER and they had to feed it charcoal to get it to throw up or something like that. And then there was other people who were like, well, my dog ate chocolate all the time as a kid. Nothing happened to him. And, uh, you know, we kind of got in this nice conversation of like, how much should we really be taking our, our dog to the ER? But that's certainly. Uh, no, I was just saying exactly. It's like, <laughs> like I know some dogs like growing up who ate like chocolate and everything else and all the things you're not supposed to feed a dog and they just got fat and happy. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't know whether that actually kicks into where you need to need to be taking them to the to the ER. And it was funny. I forget. I think oh, it was uh, uh, C.K. Lewis. You know, he uh-huh. would, he, he did a bit. He was talking with some people that were from uh, another country, and he was talking about the surgery for their animal. And the the guy thought he misheard him. He said, "Wait a minute, you have surgery for your pets?" And he's like, "Yes." And the guy was astonished that that would be a thing, right? Because in his country, they would never dream of sending their pets to surgery. So it's all a different perspective, obviously. But it is, uh, it is, <laughs> it is interesting. I guess there is a whole field out there. All you know, that I guess that's how they keep the vets in business, having those uh, emergency surgeries and after-hours uh, problems. So, and my youngest wants to be a vet. So please, everyone, you know, please keep sending. <laughs> 
send your like a uh, pet to the emergency room because my my son wants to make some money when he grows up. <laughs> All right, yeah. All right, very good. Next on the line is Annette. Annette, what's some shit you heard in the office? I've heard a lot of crazy shit in the office over the years. Uh, the most recent one was we had detectives out on arrest and handcuffs be- ended up being applied from a detective to a detective rather than the suspect. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That is that is funny. Did the suspect get away? He did not. A third detective ran up and was able to put some handcuffs on. Um, but the detective that made the quote bad arrest said, "I just saw a pretty clean wrist and went for it." Oh man! Did anything like that ever happen with you, Drew? Oh, like <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to call people out. You know, there was always misunderstandings. You know, if you're late to the you know, the fight or whatever's going on. I'm, I'm not going to say that the wrong person got, you know, handcuffed, but it may or may not have happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's too funny. Oh, man. Like, well, that might have been before they, you know, they have all the officer cameras, right? If you got that on tape, man, that is, uh, oh, man, that officer can never live that down. If you can just see see that video over and over and over again. Absolutely. I'm going to blame it on the fog of war. And thankfully, back then, we didn't have cameras. So, yeah, I sympathize, guys. <laughs> All right. Next on the line is Jonathan. Jonathan, what's some shit you heard in the office? I heard one of my detectives yell out, uh, yell out plethora of penises uh, based on a sexual assault uh, case. I don't know if that's uh, a podcast okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, all the geez. stuff you hear in the office, man. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's I think it's odd. Like you just you work in the cubicle environment, and people are talking on the phone, and it's hard not to listen, right? Are you trying to be quiet so you're not interrupting the call, and then you might hear something like a plethora of penises. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like because we're all a big family, man, just like everybody gets super comfortable with each other. And when that happens, you just never know what's going to be said. So, Oh man. All right. Next on the line is Chris. Chris, what's some shit you heard in the office? Hey Jason. One time a sergeant was telling a story about her undercover work and she was undercover on a bus on Colfax in Denver, which is very fun and very seedy. And a fellow patron of the bus offered her a piece of fried chicken from his bucket. And so she's telling the story and she's like, if I don't take this chicken, that's going to blow my cover. I, they'll know. They'll know I'm a cop if I don't eat this piece of chicken. So she took a piece of chicken from the bucket and ate it and quietly freaked out later and made jokes about needing to get shots after eating chicken on the 15th. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's that is funny. Like I I thought at first that maybe she was a vegetarian and like that was a lot of pressure on her to like eat fried chicken when she was a, a vegetarian and didn't want it to come out that to blow her cover. But that is that is kind of fascinating. It's certainly never been in that situation where you're undercover, but you, obviously you're worrying about not having your cover blown. Oh, and like, I'm sure Vice could tell you all sorts of stories, but they used me as a plant one time on a massage parlor. And I swear, it's just like (laughs) the wire. If you've ever seen that TV show, there was a code word for people to come in. And I was screaming pretty much the code word. I was like, please come in here. I forget what it was, like Coca-Cola or something, whatever the word was. But yeah, man, undercover is a whole different world. Uh, 
And last but certainly not least is Jennifer. Jennifer, what's some shit you heard in the office? Oh, my gosh. So let me tell you, when I was fingerprinting this guy, we were in this like cubicle thing and I was telling him, don't be so rough. Don't be so stiff. And and some of the people who were working outside of the of the cubicle, like kind of stuck their head in like, what is going on in there? And I turned around. They're like, uh, what are you doing in that cubicle? You have some pretty vulgar language going on. I'm like, oh, I'm just fingerprinting him. And they were like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, right? Because she's she's focused on getting the fingerprinting, not about the words that are coming out of her mouth. Of course, of course. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's, like, I could just see her looking up and saying, yeah, what's wrong with you? Like, why is yeah, why why are you uh, looking at me like, that way? And then uh, obviously not paying attention to the words of, like, <laughs> stiff and, you know, you need to be more limp and, <laughs> and whatnot. So... <laughs> And see, I would just own it. I'd be like, yeah, I said what I said. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, hey, I have a mission here. I have a goal here. That's what I have to do, right? That's right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I just had, um, let's see here. I just had uh, Pam Miller on, on the show. And she said that there was a, uh, her, one of her supervisors uh, made it uh, illegal or not permissible in the office to swear and one officer says wow. like like if i can't swear i cannot interrogate suspects <laughs> like, i just can't do it so yeah we, you know we have to come up with a you know some kind of uh, happy medium here because i have to be able to swear at suspects <laughs> and i mean honestly some of those suspects don't even communicate with you unless you curse it's just like it's their love language or whatever uh, yeah you gotta yeah. speak it yeah so all right well that's shit you hear in the office if you have a, a story you'd like to tell email us at lea podcasts at gmail.com all right drew let's finish up with personal interest then and for you um you had get into amateur radio and scuba diving so um do you still get into amateur radio do you once in a while do you still get on the radio yeah, absolutely. So amateur radio, I picked up because of my granddad. Thanks, granddad, for introducing me to it. But I will still go out at least once a month for something called POTA, which is Parks on the Air. I bring my radio equipment out. I set up in the park. And it's kind of like a little competition, but I talk to people all around the world on using like 12 watts and pretty much a speaker wire. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, my call, if anyone's familiar with amateur radio out there, November 1 Echo Romeo. So listen for me on the air. <laughs> nice. And so and but that there's rules and regulations to that. Right. I mean, it, just uh, it is amateur. But in terms of the ways to communicate and everything else, there's a certain procedure that you need to follow. Right. Oh, 100 percent. So this isn't like the walkie talkies you take to campsites and stuff. So you have to have a license from the FCC. There are rules and pro protocols you have to follow. Um, but as long as you're working within the confines of that license, uh, yeah, it's it's a great hobby. And it's, it brings out the nerd in me. I get to solder a little bit. I get to build things. And so um, it's a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy it. All right. And let's get into the scuba diving. As I mentioned yesterday on the prep call, I just recently got certified as a scuba diver. And so, um, yeah, I guess uh, where where have you gone scuba diving? Maybe what what's your favorite spot? 
and just talk a little bit about your scuba diving endeavors. Yeah, so anybody that's out there that if you have an interest in scuba diving, please go get your license. And Jason and I were talking about this yesterday. It is such an eye-opening, relaxing hobby, I guess if that's what you want to call it. Um, but just being 50 feet under, like the blue ocean in the Caribbeans, and just, I, I remember the first time that I did this, I rolled on my back, I looked up, and it just feels like you're on a different planet. And for me, it, it's just freeing, it's de-stressing, um, and it's just a wonderful uh, wonderful hobby, especially while you're on vacation. It's just something else to do. So places that I've been scuba diving before, Roatan, Cozumel, kind of just the regular places that most people go. Um, my favorite place, though, Disney World. Um, so wow. me and my family, we try to go to Disney World every so often. And if you've ever been to Disney World, they have that huge aquarium. Um, and so I found out that you can actually sign up for like a, a dive and it's a fully kind of like, I, I don't know, it's like glamping. It's the equivalent of glamping, <laughs> but basically they provide all the stuff. You just show up and you, you pay on the fee, but you get to dive in that aquarium. And so in that aquarium, there's all sorts of sharks. There's all sorts of huge sea turtles that are really hard to kind of encounter out in a lot of places, but they're combined in this huge aquarium. And I got to play tic-tac-toe with some uh, some kids that were kind of eating at the restaurant because, once again, if you've ever been to Disney World, that aquarium is right next to a restaurant. So you get to interact with the guests. A lot of fun. Highly suggested. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So I might look into that. Um, it, it's funny that you talked about it being relaxing because I think there's such a learning curve with it because you have to control your breathing to to effectively scuba dive it is so unnerving in the beginning and i i think if my advice for somebody that's getting would start to get into it i i think to me maybe i wish i would have actually taken an actual swimming class because mm -hmm. i i've never been classically trained it, it to me it was so unnerving when i got certified i had to sink to the bottom of the pool stay down there a little bit, twist around, look up, and then come back up. Mm -hmm. And to me, through my whole life, when I would ever go underwater, I would take a deep breath of air and then go mm -hmm. under. But obviously, in order to sink effectively, you have to do the exact opposite of that. You have to release every bit of air that's in your lungs to help you then, then sink. And like... The first time that I tried to do that, I totally panicked once, once I got down to that and shot straight back up because it was so unnerving to me. It was so, so such a feeling of it wasn't normal at all. It was so uncomfortable. Yeah. And I was right there with you. Like, I think our tendencies is like humans is to, yes, cling to life, right? Hold your breath as long as you can. But yeah. once you kind of get in the habit like of breathing while you go under, and if anybody that's out there that's certified, you know, like keep breathing is one of the things that they talk about in scuba diving. Holding your breath and ascending and descending is like bad. Some bad things can happen. Um, but once you kind of get your body into that rhythm and then you're like, oh, I'm not dying. It's okay. Yeah. then that's where it becomes relaxing. And I'll, I'll never forget, my instructor said, like, if you come off a dive and you're exhausted, you're not doing it right. He was like, least amount of effort, just relax. Yeah, yeah. We had instructors that talked about taking a nap underwater. Yes. Which, which seems wild, right? They're that relaxed. So I would love that. That actually sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. All right. So our last segment of the show, Drew, is Words to the World. 
And this is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? All right. So here's my words, everyone. Thank you for sticking around. If you, you've made it this far in the podcast, find something you're passionate about in life. And, you know, maybe that's analysis. Maybe some that's something that's totally different. But I, I want to tell you the story about Our Daughters International in Nepal. It's a group that I'm a part of. And crime analysis helped me get my foot in the door. Each year in Nepal, there's over 11,500 trafficked victims. And Nepal is a very poor country. So one of the resources is, the, is their people. And unfortunately, they sell uh, their people across the borders to India and China. And my work in that organization has just helped me to develop some of the protocols in the places um, you know, that this uh, organization is basically at the border. They interview young women and women that fit that profile for trafficking, and they have been able to rescue over one and a half uh, thousand survivors, and they place them into to safe houses. And actually, more than that, they found eleven and a half thousand victims that they've rescued. So find what you're passionate about, use the skills that God gave you, and go out there and make a difference in the world. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> <laughs> but Thanks, I Jared. do appreciate you being on the show, Drew. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Absolutely. Same to y'all out there. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.